Well, good morning. We'll start with our Sunday school. If you've not gotten an outline, there are some in the back there. You can follow along. We're continuing on the incarnation. Last week, we, uh, we kind of went big picture and went, uh, what does the incarnation imply about Jesus' existence before his birth? And we talked about his pre-incarnate activity. Um, and so this, this was kind of on purpose, the way that I'm doing this lesson, because I was asked to do a series on the incarnation. And usually when you think of that, you think of, you know, you either think of Jesus' birth or you think of his, the personal union between his two natures, that he's God and man in one person. And so if you're talking about that, if you're talking about Christ being God and man in one person, then you really have to talk about what it means for him to be God, and then you have to talk about what it means for him to be man, and then you can talk about how he's united to both natures in one person. So that's what we're doing. We talked about Christ's divine nature last week, and now, this week, we'll talk about his human nature. So we'll talk about Christ, the finite man. Um, before we get started, let's pray, and I'll, I'll use another prayer from the ancient church about Christmas, about Christ's incarnation. So let's pray together. I'm not sure what to call you, child of the living one. Not the child of Joseph. You are not actually his blood. And while you are the son of one, I should be calling you the son of many. 10,000 names would not be enough to call you since you are the son of God and also the son of man. You are David's son and Mary's Lord. For your sake, Mary also was hated. The one who conceived you was persecuted. The sea raged against her as it did against Jonah. Herod, that raging wave, sought to drown the Lord of the seas. But Adam would rejoice, for you are the key to paradise. So I will flee with you that I may gain life wherever we go. Prison with you is no prison because we gain heaven through you. With you, the grave is no grave for you are the resurrection. Through Jesus, amen. So yes, we're talking about Christ's humanity this morning. We'll talk about uh, a couple things in that regard. But first, how do we know that Jesus was human? And this is preemptively responding to some Christological heresies that we'll get to later. But if we can show from scripture that Jesus is truly human, then we can automatically rule out any heresy that claims that Jesus was not truly human. And so first, let's look at Old Testament prophecy. And this is maybe something that we miss sometimes just, just because we, you know, we look at the prophecy and we gloss over, we don't realize the significance of it, but that the Son of Man became truly human should not have been a surprise to anyone because the thrust of all Old Testament messianic prophecy is that he would be born as a human. It's, he's, the, the Messiah is almost always prophesied with reference to his family tree. He'll be of Abraham, of Judah. He'll be a son of David. And so, let, this is what we're going to look at in the Old Testament. We're going to look at these messianic prophecies with regard to his, uh, his lineage, his genealogy. And that really shows us that he'll be human. He'll have a human genealogy just like any other human. And so first, this, this begins with Genesis 3.15, which is very early. It's often called the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Gospel. Um, and it's, it's usually agreed upon to be the earliest proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus in the Bible. The text of Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And so this comes in the narrative of the fall of man. And this is part of the curse that God puts on the serpent. Um, and it's this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this is the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. In it, he is foretold to be the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. In other words, for the savior of mankind to fulfill this passage, he would need to be born of a woman. He'd need to be truly human. The significance, again, for the incarnation is often passed over. We just marvel at the earliness of this passage and the gospel significance in it, which is good. It is, it's amazing how uh, gospel-filled this verse is, but the thrust of the passage, the, the, the real significance of it is that salvation would come to fallen humans from another human. Not an angel, not any other creature. It would come from a fellow human. The one to undo what our first parents did in bringing us into the fall would come from our first parents as their offspring or seed. And so as we continue through scripture, we're looking for a man born of a woman to redeem us from Adam's first transgression. And that's what we see when we continue in the Old Testament prophecy. Genesis 22:18. you can also see this in similar Abrahamic passages, but this is the one I'm gonna highlight. God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, in your offspring or seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is that same word in Genesis 3.15, the word for seed or offspring. Here and elsewhere, God promises to Abraham that the covenant between them, between God and Abraham, would carry on with Abraham's offspring and that it would benefit not just Abraham's family, but the whole world through Abraham's offspring. And this word offspring or seed, it's a collective noun, and that just means that it, it, it's singular in form, but it's referring to a group of people. But that also means that it could refer to a singular person because it's singular in form. And this is what Paul picks up on in Galatians 3.16. In Galatians 3, uh, Paul is talking about how the, the promise comes through Abraham and not through Moses. And he explains how this is, it, this is a promise about Jesus. And so in reference to this passage or similar passages where God talks about blessing the nations through Abraham's offspring, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but and to your offspring, referring to one who is Christ. And so with Paul, we can say that when it says your offspring, your seed in, in singular, even though it's collective, it's most truly referring to Jesus. He is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate seed of the woman that brings redemption to Adam's race. Uh, you can, we can continue. This is a similar theme that we see throughout. We see that uh, you know, we saw the most broad prophecy about uh, Jesus' lineage, that he would be human. That was in Genesis 3.15. And then it continues to get narrower. We saw now it's Abraham's family. It's not just a human, now it's Abraham's family. And now we're going to see it continue to get narrower. In Genesis 49.10, this is in the midst of the uh, prophetic blessing that Jacob pronounces over his 12 sons before he dies. And he says to Judah, in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so the family line of the promised Messiah continues from Abraham through Jacob and through Judah. He'll be of the tribe of Judah. The ruler's staff will not depart from Judah's feet. Uh, In Jacob's prophetic blessing, he foretold that the Messiah, the ruler to whom the peoples, or you could say the Gentiles, will obey, will come from Judah. And it gets even narrower. We have the tribe of Judah, but then in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, in the midst of the Davidic covenant that God makes with David, we see this passage. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, of course, this most, uh, in terms of the closest fulfillment in time, this spoke of Solomon, that he built a, he built a house for God, that, that's in surrounding verses. But there are, there are aspects of this prophecy that cannot be fulfilled by Solomon. Uh, his, the throne of his kingdom was not established forever. He uh, apostatized later in life and committed idolatry. Uh, and and his, uh, his son, Rehoboam, uh, the kingdom was torn from his hand. He only had half of the kingdom. Um, and so we're looking for somebody else. And of course, that someone else is Jesus. This Davidic covenant clarifies that the Messiah will not only be of the seed of a woman, not only the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, but even the seed of David. For this clearly speaks of someone greater than Solomon. And so this is the narrowest, really, that it gets in the Old Testament. We're not just looking for a human, not just from the family of Abraham and Judah, but from the family of David. And now I'll just look at two... um, two prophecies from the books of the prophets, so Isaiah and Micah, and these just clarify two aspects. You know, I could go on with, with a lot more messianic prophecies, but these just cover two new aspects that we haven't covered concerning Christ's incarnation. Isaiah seven fourteen says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so in the previous prophecies that we've already looked at, we've seen that Uh, the Messiah would be truly human and would be born of a woman. But this is the first prophecy of how the Messiah would be born of a woman. And of course, as interpreted in Matthew 1.23, Isaiah's prophecy foretold the Messiah's miraculous birth to a virgin. That is, it's not an ordinary conception. It's without a man. So the Messiah's birth will uh, be unique. He is the seed of a woman. He's the seed of Abraham, Judah, etc., And he's like us because he's a human, but he's unique in his role as savior from Adam's sin. And that's kind of what his birth, his uh, virgin birth shows. So that shows us how the Messiah would be born of a woman, that is, by a virgin. And then Micah 5.2 shows us another aspect. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so this prophecy is unique because it foretells where the Messiah would be born of a woman. 
And so by virtue of his descent from David, he would be born in the town of David in Bethlehem. And this is, of course, fulfilled by Jesus according to Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 2, 6. And so that is the Old Testament prophecy. And now let's turn to New Testament witness. And of course, we could, we could do a lot of reading in the New Testament concerning Jesus' true humanity, but we'll look at just a very broad overview of some texts that most obviously demonstrate that Jesus was truly human. The first is 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so it's very explicit. He's called a man, uh, the man Jesus Christ. And it's by virtue of his being mediator. And that makes sense because, you know, when we're talking about Christ having two natures, he's God and man, and he's a mediator between God and men. And so in order to be a good mediator, he had to be able to relate to both parties. He had to be able to come in between both parties and bring them and reconcile them to one another. And that's what he does, and he's able to do that because he is a man, and he is God. That's 1 Timothy. Then Galatians 4.4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so this just confirms what we saw all throughout the Old Testament prophecy, especially in Genesis 3.15, that the savior of the world would be born of a woman. And that means he'll be truly human. Now turning to Hebrews 2, and Hebrews 2 has a lot to say about Christ's incarnation and the importance of Christ's incarnation uh, and, and, yeah, and why he needed to be like us. And so I'm just going to talk about one aspect or maybe two aspects that Hebrews 2 picks up on uh, in verses 14 to 18. I think I'm going to skip around a little bit in that section, but this is what Hebrews 2 says about Christ's incarnation. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so this section clarifies why Jesus had to be truly human, why he had to be like us in every way. It shows the significance. In other words, Christ's mission preceded his humanity. Uh, he had to be like us in every way because he was sent to be our great high priest and deliverer from death. And in order to do that, he had to partake of flesh and blood and be able to sympathize with us and to, to suffer like us, to be tempted like us. And so there are two reasons in this passage, just to, to, to distill it down, two reasons that Jesus had to be human, so that through his death he could destroy the devil who has the power of death, and so that he could be our sympathetic high priest. And of course, he couldn't die if he wasn't human, and he couldn't sympathize with us if he wasn't like us. So that's Hebrews 2. 
the next thing is, is just very simple. The most common title that Jesus applies to himself is the Son of Man. That means he is a man. Uh, if you want a, a, a reference, Matthew 13, 37. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man probably more than anything else. And so anybody who wants to deny that Jesus is a man uh, needs to reckon with what Jesus says about himself. Uh, and the next thing that we see also from the Gospels is Jesus' human attributes. He's described as a human just like we are. He has a body uh, with all the same functions and characteristics as our bodies. In other words, uh, he ate, according to Luke 24, 43. And that's after his resurrection. That's in his glorified body that he ascended into heaven with. He's eating fish at the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Uh, he drank uh, Matthew eleven nineteen, uh, Jesus says, "The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He slept." Matthew eight twenty four. That's when uh, there's the storm and he's in the boat asleep while his disciples are freaking out. So Jesus had a, a true human body, just like ours, with all the same attributes. But he also had a human mind, like ours. He had emotions. Uh, John eleven thirty five when. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He wept. He wept at the sight of Lazarus. He had emotions just like we do. He grew, not only physically, of, of course he obviously grew physically, but he also grew mentally. This is what Luke 2.52 says. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. That means he had progression in his intellectual capabilities. Of, of course it was you know, faster than us probably. We see him at 12 in the temple talking with the teachers. But he still had to make that development. He wasn't born just knowing everything as a human. His human intellect grew. He also had a human soul. Uh, Matthew 26, 38, he says, my soul is troubled uh, uh, near to death, something like that. And of course, this is important, we'll see later, because there are heresies that deny that Jesus had a true human mind or soul. And most importantly, the attribute that we see in the New Testament is that Jesus died. Jesus could not have died if he was not a true human. And so if you're denying that he's true human, you're denying that he died. And if you're denying that he died, then you're denying that your sins can be forgiven. And so that's the, probably the most important human attribute that we see in the New Testament, and if you want to text, again, just look back at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 explains that Jesus had to be human in order to defeat the one who had power over death. So that's the New Testament and Old Testament uh, witness, and now let's turn to the mode of Christ's incarnation. How did he become incarnate? What was the vehicle through which he became man? And of course, we've already seen in Isaiah 7 that Christ became truly human through the virgin conception. This is a biblical fact. We know that this is true. Christ was incarnated through the virgin conception. Uh, you can see it in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, or Luke 1, 26 to 38, and I'll just skip around a little bit in Luke 1. Uh, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin whose name was Mary, and the angel said to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born 
the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And so this is a, this is a biblical fact. If you're denying that Jesus was incarnated through the virgin conception, then you're just, you're going against scripture. Um, and you're free to do that, but just know that you're not being a biblical Christian if you're denying the virgin conception. Uh, and of course, that's a very heated debate in modern times, but throughout the ancient church, throughout the history of our church, this was a agreed upon fact that Jesus was born to a virgin. The Apostles' Creed says this. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Apostles' Creed. Our Westminster Larger Catechism 37 says, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. So it's agreed upon, not only in the broader history of the church, but in our history as Presbyterians, we agree that Christ was born to the Virgin Mary and of her substance. That's important. Uh, I'll highlight that in a bit when we talk about the heresies again, but it's important that he was born of her substance. She was really his mother. And so we know that the virgin birth is true. We know it from scripture. We know it from the history of the church that this is, we, we've agreed upon this interpretation of scripture. We've agreed upon that we're going to read scripture and, and believe it and not deny that he was uh, born as scripture says he was. But we don't know how it was true. We know that it was true. We don't know how it was true. It was a miracle. It, it was a supernatural birth by the powerful working of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't speculate about how exactly God performed the miracle. Uh, all we know is that the Holy Spirit caused Mary's womb, which was otherwise unable to conceive on its own, to conceive on its own. We don't know the specifics of how that happened, and we shouldn't try to pry into that. And again, we'll see an example of people who try to speculate on that when we look at the heresies. Uh, but we can ask this question, why was Christ incarnated through the virgin birth? Why, why not some other way? Why not the normal way? Uh, and there have been many speculative answers to this question. For example, I think this is the most common Roman Catholic answer to the question, that the virgin birth protected Jesus from original sin in some way. Another answer is that it somehow ensured that Jesus was the son of God, or that uh, it somehow ensured that Jesus only had one person and two natures rather than having two persons and two natures. And some of these answers seem appealing, but there's no solid biblical basis for any of them, especially, you know, the one about original sin. Why would his not having a human father protect him from original sin? Do only fathers pass down original sin and not mothers? His sinlessness was not caused by his conception. Uh, further, there's no theological or logical reason why the virgin birth was necessary in order, to, in order for Christ to be truly God or even to have one person. I can't really get into the specifics of that, but there's no reason why it had to be a virgin birth, theologically or logically, in that regard. And so what is the answer? Why was it the virgin conception? The best answer is that 
the virgin conception testifies to the divine initiative in Christ's incarnation and salvation. And this is a theological, a, a biblical theme that we see uh, throughout redemptive history that, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they didn't give birth to a son when they were young and spry and able to conceive on their own. They gave birth to Isaac beyond the natural capabilities of their bodies. When their bodies, I think Paul says this, their bodies were as good as dead. They were 100 years old, but they bore a son, and that was to illustrate that he was the son that God had promised them. God gave them that son, and he made it clear that he gave them that son by the, by the manner in which they had the son, beyond their natural capabilities. And this happens throughout scripture. Samson's parents have the same uh, experience. Samuel's mom, Hannah, John the Baptist's parents even have the same experience. And all of this is to illustrate that God's, that all of this is to illustrate God's power to bring salvation in the face of human powerlessness. God brings salvation when his people are powerless to bring salvation for themselves. And Jesus' birth is the culmination of this biblical theme. Jesus could not have been conceived through a virgin if not by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1.37, nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus was born in a way that it would, have been po- it would have been absolutely impossible if God was not involved. And so it shows us that God was involved, that this was God's chosen servant because it would have been impossible otherwise. To say this differently, the virgin birth testified that Jesus was not just another human born like any other human, but that he was sent from God as the foretold Messiah, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, Judah, and David, the Redeemer, the second Adam. Um, And of course, it is the fulfillment of prophecy. As we saw in Isaiah 7, uh, 14, that this birth was the only one that fulfilled that prophecy, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So that is how Christ became man. Now let's consider what it means Uh, What was the nature of Christ's humanity? And there are two things that we can say about Christ's human nature. The first is that Christ is like us in every way. That means his human nature is equal to ours in almost every way. Any attribute that you have as a human, you could describe Jesus in the same way. No matter You know, no matter what the carols, the Christmas carols tell you, I'm certain that Jesus had a normal and healthy birth and that he was crying like any other baby cries after the baby's born. It was not a silent night. (laughs) Uh, And just like any other baby, Mary nursed Jesus. He had, you know, dirty diapers. I don't know what they used for diapers, but he had dirty ones. Uh, He had to learn how to walk, how to talk. He developed just like any other baby. Uh, You know, unlike the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus was not miraculously bringing clay birds to life or uh, making friends disappear when they upset him. This is what the Gnostic Gospels say. (laughs) Jesus was a a baby and and a child just like any other, and he developed just like us. Again, Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. 
And that means he grew physically, just like everyone. He went through childhood, went through adolescence. But it also means that he grew mentally and intellectually. He not only had the same physical attributes as us, but also the same mental attributes as us. He had the same type of rationality, emotion, and will that we do. And so we can say Christ is like us in every way, but the second thing that we can say about his humanity is that he's like us in every way, sin accepted. The only difference between Jesus' human nature and ours concerns sin. Not only did Jesus never commit a sin, but he didn't even have a sinful nature like we do. His human nature, even though it was weak like ours, it was unglorified like ours, it was not fallen like ours. Rather, as the second Adam, he was without sin. And this did not make him any less human. Some people have argued this, that Jesus had to at least be able to commit a sin in order to be human like us. But that's not true. Adam was originally created without sin. And in heaven, you and I will be without sin, without even the inclination or the ability to sin. And so the ability or inclination to sin is not inherent to human nature without exception, even though in our fallen state it is inherent. So Jesus was like us in every way, sin accepted. He did not have the inclination or ability to sin that we do because he was the head of a new covenant. He was the new federal head. And so just like Adam, when he began his vocation as the federal head in the garden, he was created without sin. Same with Jesus. Um, you can even make an analogy and say that Jesus is equal to the Father regarding his deity and equal to us regarding his humanity. And, of course, this is an analogy because we're not saying the same thing. When we're saying that Jesus is equal to the Father, uh, they share the actual same essence, but when we say he's equal to us, we're just saying he's in the same species, he's in the same genus as us. So there's, there's, they're different, but it's an analogy, and it, it's, it's a really powerful Analogy. This is what the definition of Chalcedon says. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ is consubstantial of the same substance or essence with the Father concerning his divine nature, and the same one, that is Jesus, is consubstantial with us concerning the human nature, like us in all things without sin. So this is what we can say about Jesus' human nature. He's like us in every way without sin. And now let's turn to relevant Christological heresies. And by that I mean heresies that affect Jesus' human nature, heresies that would go against everything that we just established from Scripture um, and from uh, the confessions, etc., the, ca- the creeds. And so there are two directions that you could err or err when it comes to Christ's humanity. Uh, You could emphasize Christ's deity at the expense of his humanity and somehow make him not like us in every way. Or you could emphasize his humanity at the expense of his deity and make him no longer consubstantial with the Father. And so we'll, we'll look at each of those in turn. First, those that damage Christ's true humanity. Docetism is probably the arch heresy in this regard. It goes the farthest. It's a Gnostic heresy that denies Christ's true humanity, and the name docetism comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to appear or to seem. And so this heresy claims that Jesus only appeared or seemed to be human. His human nature 
was like an apparition or an illusion. He was not truly human. He just seems to be human. Uh, Gnosticism, along with Neoplatonism, uh, believed that the material and physical realm was evil. And so in order to separate Jesus from that evil, they denied his physical and material existence. And so according to Docetism, Jesus was not like us in every way. He wasn't like us at all. He just seemed to be like us. He was putting on a show for us, but he wasn't actually like us. Uh, the next one is Apollinarianism, and this similarly denies Jesus' true humanity. But Apollinarianism affirms that Christ had a true body and a, a human soul, but it denies that he had a human mind or spirit. And so he's also building off of Platonism. Uh, this is Apollinarius. He was a fourth century bishop of Laodicea. He was depending on Plato's distinction between body, soul, and spirit or mind. And so this is, you know, if you're familiar, it's called the trichotomous view of human nature. Not important to get into, but this heresy claims that Jesus had a human body and soul, but not a rational human spirit or mind. And so it wasn't, you know, we say Christ is one person with two natures. That's not the case with Apollinarianism. They say it's one person with one mixed nature, partly human, partly God. Uh, and basically what they're saying is that uh, the human mind was replaced by the divine mind. And so his intellect uh, didn't come from his human nature. His intellect came from his divine nature. And so in, in Apollinarianism, just like in Docetism, Jesus is not like us in every way. He didn't have a human mind like us. The last one in this category is Anabaptism. And Anabaptism uh, denies Christ's true humanity with its celestial flesh Christology. And this, is, this kind of sounds funky, but basically they teach that Jesus was human. He was truly human according to them, but his human flesh came down from heaven. He was not conceived of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. He was not of her substance, like we read in Larger Catechism 37. Mary was simply a surrogate, according to Anabaptism. She simply was the vehicle through which Christ entered the world, but she wasn't actually his mother. He wasn't actually born of her substance. And so those were the heresies that deny Christ's humanity. And now let's look at the opposite direction. Those that uh, affect his incarnation but deny his deity. And the main one here is adoptionism. Adoptionism overemphasizes Jesus' humanity at the expense of his deity. According to adoptionism, Jesus was born as a mere man, but was later adopted by God to be his son, whether it was at his baptism, at his resurrection, or at his ascension. Jesus became God's son at a certain point, but he wasn't born as God's son. And therefore, Jesus was not the son of God eternally. He didn't exist before he was born. He didn't have a pre-incarnate activity in the Old Testament. Instead of a God who became man, you have a man who became God, according to adoptionism. Uh, in a similar um, category, I guess, would fall Islam and Judaism and paganism, who similarly emphasize Jesus' humanity, 
but they reject his deity altogether. And likewise, would the, the modern view fit here that Jesus was simply a good teacher? He was just a human, he was a good teacher, but he wasn't actually God. And so that heresy emphasizes humanity at the expense of deity. And now a quick response to these heresies. My response to any heresy that, would, that overemphasizes Jesus' humanity at the expense of deity uh, would be the same as my response to Arianism from last week. So if you want more on this, just uh, find last week's outline or listen to the recording, I guess. Uh, but basically, Scripture repeatedly identifies Jesus as the eternal Son of God. John 1.1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this Word is Jesus, and therefore Jesus existed before he was born. He was in the beginning. That's the beginning of Genesis 1.1. John 10.30 says, uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus himself is truly God, just as the Father is. He is one with the Father. And so, Scripture denies any claim that Jesus was not God, or that he became God later, or anything like that. And even more importantly, if Jesus was not God, he could not have saved us. He could not have borne God's eternal wrath for us. And again, if you want more on that, look back at last week's outline. My response to heresies that underemphasize Jesus' humanity is to point out how significant it is for us that Jesus became human and how biblically obvious that fact is. So in response to docetism or Apollinarianism, Scripture clearly shows that Jesus had a true human body and mind. It was important that he had a human body. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. If Jesus didn't have a body, he could not have borne our sins on the tree. Uh, and it is obvious that he had a human mind. Again, Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom. The divine mind does not need to grow in wisdom. So Jesus had a true human mind. In response to Anabaptist celestial flesh Christology, it's obvious that Mary was more than just a surrogate. She was his actual mother. And this is significant because Jesus' human genealogy comes biologically from Mary and by adoption it comes from her husband Joseph. And so if Jesus, uh, if his human nature didn't come from Mary but came from heaven, then how could he be called seed of a woman? How could he be called the offspring of Abraham? How could he be called from the tribe of Judah or the son of David? He just appeared to be that way if his humanity came from heaven. The other part of my response to these heresies comes as we consider the significance of Christ's humanity. And so that's our last point, so we'll turn there. The significance of, of Christ's humanity. And we're gonna ask the question first, why was it necessary that our Redeemer be truly human? Couldn't God have simply wiped away our sin just by divine fiat? He could have just said, I forgive you, therefore it's so. Why did, he ha why did our Redeemer have to be truly human? True, that's exactly right. Yeah, and we're gonna turn to Westminster Larger Catechism 39, which asks this question, why was it required or requisite that the mediator should be man? And it, and it gives that answer that we had to have the shedding of blood. It was required that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, 
suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling for our infirmities, and that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. In other words, Jesus' humanity is so important because in order to be the mediator between God and man, Jesus had to be a true man. In order to be the priest on behalf of men, Jesus had to be a man. This is what Hebrews 5.1 says. Um, I'm not gonna quote it, but it, it says that when a high priest is chosen, he's chosen from among the people that he's going to represent. And so in order to represent us as our priest, Jesus had to be chosen from among us. He had to have our nature. In order for the last Adam to undo what the first Adam did, he had to take on Adam's nature and be in the same relation to God. He had to be in the same relation to God as the first Adam. To perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf, to perform obedience on our behalf, he had to be in our place. Again, he had to be in the same relation to God. He had to be under the same law. That's what Paul said in, in Galatians 3. Again, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And so to redeem us from the law, he had to be under the law. And because he was like us in every way, he has gone before us and we will follow him. He stands in his glorified and resurrected body in heaven, just as we will someday. You can say it this way. We will be like him because he became like us. If you deny that he became like us, how can you be sure that we will be like him in our glorified state? We have a human mediator who is like us in every way, who died for us. And of course, uh, like we've already said, he could not have died if he wasn't human. Hebrews 2 showed us that. He, be, he took on flesh and blood so that he could destroy death through death. And so we have a mediator who's like us in every way, who died for us, who stands before God praying for us. And that's what our priest does. He offers a sacrifice and he offers intercession for us. He prays for us. And how comforting it should be for us to know that someone like us stands at God's right hand and intercedes for us. He's like us, and so he can sympathize with us. He experienced the same pains and trials that we do. He experienced the loss of a friend in John 11, and he wept at it. He experienced tiredness, hunger, thirst. He suffered and was tempted in every way that we do, and yet without sin. And that should bring us great comfort to know that Jesus was like us, and yet he conquered for us. And so I'll close by reading some quotes from early church fathers on this topic, uh, because I think they beautifully summarize what I'm trying to say in a, in a way that I can't put it. So Gregory of Nazianzus, he's a Cappadocian father, um, I believe about the fourth century, maybe fifth century, Gregory of Nazianzus says, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. And you can tell he's responding to Apollinarius there who denied that Christ had a human mind. 
That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If he has not assumed all of our nature, then all of our nature is not healed. This last quotation from Irenaeus, I think this is the second century, very early apologist. Irenaeus says, Christ therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants. A child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age, being at the same time made to them an example of piety, righteousness, and submission. A youth for youths, become an example to youths, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. So likewise, he was an old man for old men, that he might be a perfect master for all, not merely as respects the setting forth of the truth, but also as regards age, sanctifying at that same time the aged also, and becoming an example to them likewise. Then at last he came on to death itself, that he might be the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, the prince of life, existing before all and going before all. Amen. Well, that's our lesson on Christ's true humanity. I don't think we have time for questions, but please approach me afterwards or send me an email or anything. Um, yeah, God bless.